as we get into Hosea chapter 9, this is not a commentary. This isn't God in any way giving us direction about the, the struggle that we as believers may have with sin. Okay, That's real, and that's uh, something that we would expect within our lives. Uh, and I just want to make it very clear that this is something different. This is a rejection of God. This is something that has been put off, something that is habitual, something that we are choosing to be engaged in. Um, we have to understand that Israel is still God's people. And that God has still made promises to them. And as we compare the church and we use Israel as God's example people to you and I, and we make application the same, we're not talking about a loss of salvation. Uh, we're talking about a correction. This is God addressing their pursuit of sin. This is God correcting them for their pursuit, for their practice, for their uh, continual pursuit and engagement in idolatry. We find it expressed, we find the outward expression of their heart, of where they stand before the Lord in their rejection, expressed in their idolatry and in their adulterous forsaking of God's word. In other words, they have other standards of righteousness, they have other standards of authority that they have elevated to a position above or at least equal to the true and the living God. And so today we're going to find that the church or the world today has many of the same expression of their pursuit of sin. And sadly, it isn't something that we find only in the world. It's something that we encounter even in the church. So there are going to be some apt uh, things for us to address this morning. So let's let's get into it. Uh, verse 1 in Hosea chapter 9, verse 1. God tells them, Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy, as other people or as other nations. For thou hast gone a whoring from thy God, thou hast loved a reward upon every corn floor or threshing floor. Now the command here is to not rejoice like other nations. God tells them, don't rejoice like these other peoples. And this is an interesting thing for us to consider as we study and we look at the history of Israel. Now, the reason that they are not to rejoice, the reason that God has said, put all of that aside, don't rejoice like these other nations, is because their trust is outside of God. It isn't founded and rooted and settled in Him. It's outside of God. They're looking at other things. And we'll remember that back in Israel's history, there was a desire expressed for them to be like the other nations. You guys remember this? Samuel is the reigning prophet at the time. In fact, let's turn there. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And let's, let's look at some, some passages here. And I just want to, as you turn there, I want to make a quick comment that as we look at Israel's history, right? God had himself been ruling and reigning over them. He was effectively a theocracy. He had his representatives in Samuel, the prophets that were there, the, the go-betweens, as it were, speaking for God to the people. They had religious instruction through the priests, and that was uh, their, their form of worship had been established. God had codified this in the book of law. And one other thing that we have to understand is that before 
Israel demanded a king, God had made provision and rules for their king. Not only, only that, that, as we study through, we continue forward from this point, point, we see that there's sort of a false start, as it were, in the first king, in Saul. And then God chooses a king, a man after his own heart, and establishes promises and furthers the covenant of redemptive purpose through that lineage of David. And as we study through the major and the minor prophets in the Old Testament, we find that this throne of David is going to be established, and we see that theme throughout. So all I'm saying is that God of his sovereignty, even before the nation of Israel chose to reject him as their ruler, had a plan and a purpose in all of this. That he was going to redeem it for the benefit of all of mankind. And I think that in some respects that helps us to understand the motivation, if I can phrase it that way, if I can humanize God to that extent, of why God would even create anything. Knowing that man is going to reject him, knowing that Adam and Eve would engage in sin, that all of a sudden there would be none righteous, no, not one, nobody that would hold the standard of righteousness that he had given, yet he made them anyway. That in his love, not in a, in a desire or a need to somehow express it because he's perfect and whole within himself, unwanting and unneeding of anything, but chose to do it anyway. That he in his sovereignty, all the way from the very beginning, from the inception of his creation, has provided a means and a, and a method for saving mankind. And so when we see here this almost this disparity where God has said, listen, I'll rule over you, and his people reject him, yet God had a further purpose for that kingly lineage of David throughout all of the Old and the New Testament. There is no disparity. There's a great unity because it's all about the redemptive purpose that God had for mankind. So we pick the story up here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let's begin in verse 5. So the people are discussing with Samuel, and they said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk, walk not in thy ways. ways. Now make, make us a king and judge us does. like all the nations. So Samuel's ruling. His sons are coming up. They're going to be the next guys in charge, and they're not ruling the same. They don't have the same character that Samuel has. And the people say, we want a king over us. And as we go through and we read, we're not going to read all of this passage. Uh, we see that there is this interaction with the people of God and Samuel. And that there is some expression here of their, well, let's just jump down to verse 7, for example. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken not, hearken unto the voice of the people. So here is God. He says, listen, we're going to allow this. Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Samuel is somewhat downtrodden. He's sort of distressed because here he is. He's, he's in charge. He's God's man on the scene and doing a relatively, not a relatively, Samuel doing a good job. But the people of put that off. And so Samuel's sort of discouraged by that fact. And God says, listen, no, Samuel, this is going to be what we're, what we're doing. This is how we're moving forward. And it almost seems as if God is submitting himself to the will of the people. 
And we have to understand that that is an incorrect interpretation, that God is, in fact, sovereign. And that's why I bring up that there was this promise made and rules established for the king even before they had called for a king. God in his sovereignty knew, God in his plan and purpose to redeem mankind had always established that this was going to be the way things would happen. It's no surprise to him. So here it is at the proper time, just as Jesus entered the world at the proper time, at the proper time, the nation of Israel gets their king. If we jump down to uh, verses, verse 19 and 20, for it says, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. So Samuel is told by God, you listen, you need to try. This is what we're going to do. But you need to let them know what kind of king they're going to have, what they're going to reap if they sow this. And so he explains to them all the consequences. That there's going to be taxation, that there's going to be uh, servanthood, and all of those kinds of things that are associated with having this delegated authority. Yet they won't hearken to Samuel. They don't listen to him, and they said, they refuse to obey. Nay, but we will have a king over us. That we may also be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So here it is. We have this nation that is ruled specifically and very purposefully and directly by God. And they reject him and they desire a king. They desire some other authority over them. And here we are in the book of Hosea and he says, listen, don't rejoice as other nations rejoice. You've already subjected yourself to the consequence, the reaping of what you sow and having a king and desiring that over you. Don't rejoice as others because when we get into the very root of it, as we saw from the very beginning, that as these kingdoms split and all of these people were established in leadership by God himself, that as they pursue that and as they have arisen to power, that each one of them has grabbed onto it and selfishly used it. And we see that Jeroboam, the, the first king of the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, established idolatry as the mechanism of control for his people. To keep them separated from the true worship of God so they no longer had to go to Jerusalem and keep them in Ephraim, keep them where they wouldn't be turned back to God. They wouldn't be turned back to God's king, as it were. Now, all of this, and I, and I put this up here, this is quite the commentary on modern times. Because in many respects, what we have happening in the world today, whether it's in conservative circles or liberal circles, both do the same thing, but they're looking for a person to elevate to a position of authority that is equal at the least, to that of God. And we're going to submit ourselves to that authority. That is where we're looking for our deliverance. That is where we're looking for, for our hope, for the, the repurposing and the rebranding, the re whatever it may be of our country, the salvation of America, or whatever country, because it isn't just in America. Don't rejoice as other nations rejoice. We're looking for something far greater and far more substantial and some rebranding or reconfiguring of a country. 
And as we've studied through in Sunday school, I'm convinced that our founding fathers that, that upon the creation and establishment of America, this very country, I think they understood that. I think that there was a rooted in that very fact, and that's why the word of God was so central in their existence. But no longer today. Today we're looking for something, by and large, people are looking for something different, something more immediate, something somewhat like the Jews in, the days, in Jesus' day were looking for in regard to their Messiah. Don't rejoice like other nations. In Romans 13.1, and I just want to remind us of this very fact, because as we talk about all this, we have to understand that no matter what happens, no matter who is in that position of authority, that God has established it. That God has, by his sovereignty, by his providence, that he has established that authority. Romans 13.1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. And here we see it played out to a very specific degree in Samuel's day where God says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to allow this. He and his sovereignty at the perfect time establishes a king over Israel. Now the people take that and it becomes a point of idolatry. It becomes a point of, of inappropriate worship. And just as we read in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. We find that it's very much the same today. Within the church, you have those that follow the pastor, not Jesus. Outside of the church, we have those that are looking for political deliverance and not spiritual security. Israel, the kingdom of Israel, will not rejoice as the nations rejoice. And we as the church should not rejoice as other nations rejoice. We're, we, we are subjects of a different kingdom. It was established at the birth of Jesus Christ and has never ceased ever since, though we don't sometimes acknowledge or feel as if we're directly connected to it. Here it is in existence. God is the object of our trust. He will set up and he will take down rulers, kings, and nations to accomplish his plans and his purpose. The other thing that we learn from verse 1 in Hosea chapter 9 is that Israel was in depravity. Now, he, he talks about them going to whoring, uh, that they have gone and sought other idols and those kinds of things. Thou hast loved a reward upon every corn floor. This isn't new. And so by way of any kind of review, let's look in chapter 2 of Hosea, verses 6 through 9. Because we find here, therefore... Behold, I will hedge up the way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after uh, her lovers, but they shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them that shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will return to my first husband, for then was it better than with me now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold that they prepared for Baal. Therefore, I will return 
and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof and will recover my wool and my flax in Hosea chapter 4, again, we find a very similar in verses 12 through 14. My people ask counsel at their stocks or at their idols. And their staff declares unto them, for the spirit of whoredom has caused them to err, and they have gone a whoring out from under their God. They're seeking other things. They sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills under oaks and poplars and elms. Because the shadow or the shade thereof is good. Therefore, your daughters shall commit whoredom and your spouses shall commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit a whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery, for themselves are separated with whores and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore, the people that does not understand shall fall. Now, there's two things happening here. They've established idols to worship false gods, even on their threshing floor. So here they are bringing in the harvest, doing the work that is necessary. And in the midst of that, they have their idols on the floor itself, worshiping that dumb, useless, false God. And in addition to that, the, it, especially in the original language, they've fallen into ritualistic immorality. And when we read about the, the, the things that are happening both in chapter 2 and in chapter 4 and here in chapter 6, they're both a spiritual metaphor and a literal happening. There's a lot of depravity in the nation of Israel. God told us in chapter 4, listen, I'm not going to punish them when they do these kinds of things because everybody's doing it. If you want to study further, if you want to look at what's being talked about here, I'll just tell you right down in your notes, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 17 through 18. And there God deals and gives his people specific instruction. These are things that you ought not to do. And I'll just tell you that the word dog in those passages in that means something other than a dog. We'll leave that to study on your own. But there is a spiritual metaphor being painted, as well as a literal interpretation that is very applicable in this circumstance. So here they are. Here's Israel. We've rejected God. We're not to rejoice as all these other nations because we're falling under God's judgment. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, we read in Scripture. And here it is commanded not to rejoice. Why? For thou hast loved a reward upon every cornfield because of your depravity. Now he continues on in verse 2. It says, The floor of the winepress shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in them. God removes his provision from his people. No longer is he going to provide their needs. And this is not news to us as we... we highlighted it back in chapter two that God was going to remove. Here's all the things that he's providing. And they take those very provisions and they offer them to their idols. And so God's going to remove them from them. And here he says the same thing. I'm not going to, uh, the, the floor of their wine press shall not feed them and the new wine shall fail them. The, the, God removes his provision. And we should understand that God's people will not prosper when they pursue sin. Galatians 6, verses 6 and 7 tells us that God is not mocked. 
That whatsoever a man sows, that shall also reap. And if we sow that in the flesh, we're going to reap destruction. And if we sow to the spirit, we'll reap life everlasting. Now, this isn't a, as I said earlier, this isn't a commentary on losing salvation. Or anything like this. this is a commentary on our pursuit. What is our habit? What do we choose day in and day out to engage in? But God removes his provision from his people. We won't expect to prosper when we are in pursuit of sin. Now, in Amos chapter 4, and we'll remember that Amos is a contemporary prophet, that he was speaking to the kingdom of Israel at the same time that Hosea was speaking. And he says in verses 6 through 9 of Amos chapter 4, And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and want of bread in all your places. You have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Now, cleanness of teeth, while that sounds like a good thing, all it means is your teeth haven't been dirty because you haven't eaten anything. Right? There is famine in the land. God has removed his provision. And what does it say? And you have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I want you to notice that there's somewhat of a progression here that God is, in fact, at the beginning, simply correcting. I'm going to turn up the heat, as it were, to refine my people and turn them back to me. And also I have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. Rained not withered. In other words, God is using everything at his disposal, as it were, to be able to correct the people that might turn back to him. This is very familiar. We talked about this throughout this book. Verse 8. So two cities. Two, two or three cities, cities wandered on the one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have smitten you with blasting in there. When your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, and the palmer worm devoured them, yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. We have that same continuing thing, that this is God's hand of correction upon his people. They're not going to prosper in their pursuit of sin, in the rejection of him, nor would we expect ourselves to prosper when we pursue things that are contrary to God. Verse 3 of Hosea chapter, <clears throat> chapter 9, he says, They shall not dwell in the Lord's hand, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. He talks about this return to Egypt. Now, I want to first go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you'll turn there with me, Deuteronomy chapter 4. And in this particular passage that we're reading in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 through 28. God is warning his people about the covenant that they've, they've made with him. And, he, and he's putting them in remembrance of it. And he's basically telling them what we read in Galatians chapter 6, you're going to reap what you sow. So let's begin. He says, verse 23, take heed unto yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God has forbidden thee. 
So very specifically, really, listen, remember, there is no idolatry. We don't make any graven images. When thou shalt beget children and children's children, so when you have kids and you have grandkids, he says, and you shall have your mind remain long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish off the land whereunto you go over Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days upon it. You shall but shall utterly be destroyed. God tells them, listen, he's not saying that I'm done with, with you. What he's telling them is that if you pursue other things, if you fall to idolatry, if you elevate anything that is equal or above me, that you're going to lose your place in the land. The provision, now, and remember that the land that God promised them was what? The land with milk and honey, that it was a prosperous land. It was a land that had everything that they needed. And what we find is that as Israel walks in faithfulness and obedience to God, they are blessed. They reap the blessing of God's favor, of his mercy. And I'm going to phrase it that way because it makes far more sense to you and I in that term. Because mercy is simply not receiving what we deserve. That God in his mercy towards you and I would stay his hand and we would not receive what we deserve. And in fact, we would receive something contrary to, something different than we deserve. So here is God dealing with his people in that merciful way. But he says, listen, if you forsake me, then I'm going to remove my mercy. I'm going to let you reap what you sow. I'm going to give you over to the lust of the flesh, as it were. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 17 through 18, we find exactly the same thing. In fact, all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we find these reminders to God's people that if you reject me, if you fall to idolatry, you will be removed from the land. And as I said earlier, and we had to preface everything with this, this isn't talking about losing our salvation. These are still God's people. But there is a consequence associated with pursuit of sin. In the last chapter, excuse me, the last verse of Hosea chapter nine, chapter nine, it says, My God will cast them away because they did not hearken unto him. And they shall be wanderers among the nations. Which is exactly what Deuteronomy 30 says. You're going to wander among, maybe it isn't Deuteronomy 30. It might have been one of the other many references to Deuteronomy. But nonetheless, this is exactly what we find happening. We find that the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and ultimately Judah is dispersed into the nations. Now, Israel exists today in somewhat of a unique state, if I can phrase it that way. They have a country, they have a nation, they have a group of people there, they have their own governance. They have all those but they don't have a place of worship. And not only that, there's a high percentage of Jewish, Jewish people that don't live in Israel. They are still scattered among the nations even today. 
They've never fully returned, nor will they probably ever fully return apart from Jesus' Jesus return. return. Because their pursuit isn't Christ. Their pursuit isn't Jesus, the Messiah, as he was promised. The pursuit is something else. They're still desiring a king over there. They're still looking for some deliverer other than what has been promised. They're still rejoicing as other nations rejoice. Now, you and I fully understand, and I, and I, I realize this is a broad brush, you and I fully understand that when we see the miraculous deliverance of uh, an infant nation, as it were, overcoming military might that they should have no business overcoming twice. We see it as the miraculous hand of God to protect and provide for his people. But it isn't presented that way. It's understood as something else. There is a rejoicing in the government and the organization and the structure and all of those things. It isn't God's hand. They're rejoicing as other nations rejoice, even to this day. Now, he says that you're going to go back to Egypt. You're going to be removed from the land. You're going to go back to Egypt. And when we talk about Egypt, it isn't that they're going back to Egypt because we know they went to Assyria. That's where they were. That's the nation that was used to. Uh, judge them, and he says, they'll eat unclean things in Assyria. But references to Egypt in regard to Israel are oftentimes metaphorical. And what it means is that when they go into Egypt, they're going back into bondage. They're no longer free. There are people that, have, that are occupied or somehow disallowed from worship. Now, we want him to begin to make some, some ties here because this is applicable to you and I as believers. First off, let's look in verse 5. When God is talking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, he asks them this question, what will you do in the solemn day? You're going to be removed from the land. What are you going to do in the solemn day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? Right? We'll remember that there are three times a year that all men are supposed to go to Israel to offer sacrifices prescribed not only Israel to Jerusalem, but now they're in bondage. They are not free any longer to do that. They can't worship God as they have been commanded to do any longer because they've rejected him, because they've chose to worship other gods. They've found themselves in bondage too, which is in many respects exactly what happens for you and I. I don't want to over-spiritualize this point, but in Romans chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me. Romans chapter 6. In verse 16, Paul writes for you and I, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this chapter, and we've studied through it in the past, but suffice it to say that if we submit ourselves, if we habitually commit ourselves to the pursuit of sin, we're going to find ourselves in bondage to it and no longer free to worship God. We're going to be stuck in that sin. I say stuck. I want to say quote-unquote stuck. 
You and I today, as believers in Christ, we have been liberated from the penalties of sin and death. And when God looks at you and I, we have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and therefore we are justified before God. We stand before him, declared to be righteous. And we experience this struggle with sin. We understand that. That's real. In fact, the next chapter in the book of Romans, chapter 7, addresses that very real struggle with sin. But I just want to highlight the word that it is a struggle. It's not a pursuit. It isn't a yielding to. It isn't a giving of ourselves over. Yet here is Israel, and that is their pursuit. That is what they're all about. They aren't withholding or restraining themselves from this pursuit of false gods and debauchery. They are full tilt running toward it. That is their pursuit. That is their practice. And so now they're in bondage to it, and ultimately they're going to become bound in their inability to worship God. We don't want to take for granted the blessing and the privilege that we have as believers to obey God, to serve Him. Now, keep your finger there in Romans chapter 6. I believe we're coming back here. Turn back to Hosea chapter 9. And I want to look at the fourth verse here. God says, they shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, neither shall they be pleasing unto him. Their sacrifices shall be unto them as the bread of mourners. All that eat thereof shall be polluted for their, for their bread, for their soul shall not come into the house of the Lord. Now, that word soul there, it means the bread for themselves. They're, they're offering things here, but they're not offering things in such a way that it is meaningful or that it is actual worship. In the book of Isaiah, in the first chapter, we have this condemnation of Judah, the other kingdom, of very much the same thing, where they're going through the motions of worship. They, they bring their sacrifices, they do those things that they're commanded by God to do, that even his law has prescribed for them to do, but they don't believe it. It'd be like you and I going to church or reading our Bible and those things just because that's what you're supposed to do and we're not engaged in it. We don't believe it. So here they are. God is saying to his people, they're not going to be able, they're not going to be able to offer their offerings. And if they do offer them, I'm not going to receive them. Why? Because the only reason they're doing it, it's not of joy. You'll notice that. It's not joy. The offerings that they're bringing are an obligation. It's something as if, it says the bread of mourning. It is not a joy or an honor or a privilege to the kingdom of Israel to serve the true and living God. It is a drudgery. It isn't something that they wake up in the morning and look forward to. They're not rejoicing that God's mercies are new every morning. And today, even though I may have failed yesterday, I get to serve God now. They've yielded themselves to this false worship, and now God is going to bind them to their inability to worship him. When we submit ourselves to a pursuit of other things, when we, and let me just posit this to you, we submit ourselves to going through the motions, to not worshiping God, but simply doing the things that we do because that's quote-unquote what you do. 
we're offering this mournful bread, this obligation, we are no longer worshiping. I want to talk about worship just for a while this morning because I think it is the key principle of what's happening here in Hosea chapter 9. First off, I want to just make it very clear that worship is not an emotion. Now, not, not to say that we won't feel things as we worship, but it's not an emotion. By definition, worship is a recognition or an acknowledgement of God. That's what it is. It's honor and veneration or a very high respect for who he is and all that he's done. Worship is a conscious act. And I put there in parentheses the verb, it's done. Worship is something that is done. Israel's worship became unacceptable to God because it was something that they were simply going through the motions for. It was, it was a kind of like Paul there on Mars Hill. Here are the people worshiping. And they have this idol established to the unknown God because they don't want to miss somebody. So here they are giving equal play, as it were, to every God that could ever be conceived. And here's the nation of Israel doing exactly the same thing. Why? Because I want what I can get out of it. They offer to their idols. They do all of those things so that they might get from them what they're looking for. In Hosea chapter 4, that's where they're, excuse me, chapter 2, that's where they're acknowledging their provision to be from. So God says, I'm going to remove it. They've established these other things in their life that they will give worship to rather than the true and living God. That they will serve, and as a result of their service to those things, to their outward expression of fealty and reverence for these idols, God says, I'm going to put you in bondage. You won't be free to serve me anymore. You won't be free to offer to me anymore and if you do i'm not going to receive it now jesus had a discussion with the samaritan woman about worship in john chapter four let's turn there and let's look at john chapter four and what jesus had to say about worship and i realize that it's somewhat of a simple passage in many respects but i think oftentimes we may miss it we we may we overlook the simplicity of what Jesus is saying. In John chapter 4, as Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and remember that Samaria, this is the Samaritans are a people that are resultant from this Assyrian captivity. And those that were sent back to Israel was part of that Assyrian population. They assimilated and they created their own culture and society. John chapter 4, verse 21. Jesus, in response to the woman's question, where ought we to worship? Where should we worship? Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither worship, neither in this mountain, nor yet in Jerusalem, worship the Father. And so Jesus is making reference to the temple in Jerusalem and the worship that is there, that is where God has prescribed it to be, versus, uh, and the name just escaped me, I want to say Garrison, but I don't know that that's correct. 
Samaritans had their own temple on another mountain. They may not have had a temple. They still worship there today. They still offer animal sacrifices today. All at the same location. Samaritans, in many respects, are more Jewish than Jews today. But Jesus makes the statement that it's not going to be in Jerusalem, and it's not going to be over there that we worship. Because it's not about the place, it's about the object of our worship. Here we have the nation of Israel that has fallen subject to the object of worship that is something other than God. Verse 22, you worship, you know not what. They're going through the motion of worship. Here are the Samaritans, and they bring their worship, they bring their offerings, they do the thing that God has commanded them to do, and they have sort of a unique twist on things. They have their own priesthood. They have their own uh, scriptures even that are slightly different than Jewish scripture, but there it is. He says, you don't understand what you're worshiping. They've syncretized all of these other things into their worship. And he says, we, speaking about the Jews, we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. Now, Jesus isn't making the statement that the Jews are right over the Samaritans, though they are. Because that's not the point of what he's getting at here. The Samaritans worship in ignorance. The Jews should be worshiping in awareness, in knowledge and understanding. Keep that in mind. He says, you worship what you know not. We worship what we... We know what we worship for salvation of the Jews. Verse 23, for the hour comes and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The nation of Israel in Hosea have become like the Samaritans. They worship, they have no knowledge of what they worship. For generations, they had pursued these idols, and they had put aside the true and living God, what God had said. And central to this is the Word of God. But we're going to trust something other than the declared, revealed Word of God, and that being anything. We're going we're gonna to trust that over and above what God has said. They have no knowledge of their worship. And when they offer sacrifices to God, when they offer sacrifices to those things that God himself said, I will not receive, they're doing so in their ignorance. They're doing so not knowing and understanding. They're not doing so in truth. If worship isn't an emotion, if worship is an acknowledgement, a recognition of who God is and what he's done, you can't worship him without knowledge. You can't worship him without the understanding of what he's revealed of himself. As we've studied through in Sunday school, we've talked about the attributes of God. We spent, there was an entire chapter about, about God and who he is. And we, we talk about his attributes because in many respects, that's how God has revealed himself to us. I mean, he is... This infinite being, the creator of the universe, everything that is self-existent, uncreated, undependent upon anything, and he desires to be in relationship with us. And for you and I who are finite, who are, who are made lower than the angels, he said, I'm going to explain myself 
through the description of some attributes, some characteristics. And so we understand God as he's revealed himself in his word. We understand God in respect to how he's revealed himself to us. And our response to that, the worship that we may have, that our, our, our outward expression, the verb of worship that we may hold, is probably best summed up, in my opinion, uh, and probably the opinion of many, in Romans chapter 1. Because Jesus said you're going to have to worship in spirit and in truth. And when we look at what Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say, For I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but by, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. that we would lay our lives down, that we would submit ourselves, that we would express by action worship in all that we're supposed to do. Our worship is voluntary. But for you and I who have placed trust in Jesus Christ, who are born again, there is a compulsion to worship him. Because it is our reasonable service. Because it is a reciprocation of our love. Jesus, in his submission to God the Father at Gethsemane, as he's there in his agony, looking forward to the cross, looking forward to being the offering of sin for all of mankind, as he says, if this cup can pass from me, nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done, is an expression of worship. And we see this exhibited throughout, within the Trinity itself, this submission of the Son to the Father and his plan of redemptive purpose for mankind. Our offering is our reasonable service. Now, I, I want to look in, in Luke chapter 17 for just a moment. Let's turn there. And I want to keep in mind that as we're looking in Luke chapter 17, this, this laying down of our lives, this offering of ourselves before God, that that being the, the primary mechanism, as it were, of our worship of God. Our acknowledging of who he is and what he's done and how all of our life, everything within us is due and appropriately laid down for his service. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus, uh, beginning in verse 3, Jesus interacting with his disciples. And I want to begin in verse 3. Uh, if you have one of those Bibles that has paragraphs and things in there, just ignore them. Okay, he says in verse 3, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass, trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if you repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. So Jesus is giving his, his apostles, his disciples, excuse me, some instruction. And I want you to know, because oftentimes the response of the, the audience is key in our understanding. The response of his disciples who were there in verse 5 is this, Lord, increase our faith. In other words, the way that we might serve God, that we might express worship in, in forgiveness, is a matter of faith. Do I trust 
who God is and what he said he's going to do at this point. And for you and I looking back at the cross, do I trust God and do I trust what he said he did? Now he continues on, and the Lord said, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamore, sycamine or sycamore tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the seed. See, and it should obey you. Jesus is giving an example here. He says, listen, faith is something that is powerful and active, something that is, will move things that we may not have otherwise done. And when we talk about those expressions of faith in the Bible, we, and, and primarily we get to Hebrews chapter 11, where God highlights specific examples of faith from the Old Testament. Now, none of them cast a mountain or a tree into the sea by simply saying a word. But each of them expressed faith. Each of them moved and did lay down their life in service. Why? Because they trusted God. Whether it's Noah who built an ark and hadn't seen rain, hadn't seen the judgment of God for sin. Yet he spent 120 years building an ark so that he and his family might be saved because that's what God had commanded him to do. That Abraham, who by faith would offer even Isaac, the son of promise, the one that God said every nation, every person from here on out will be blessed through this line would take him to the top of the hill to offer him as a sacrifice, to kill him, to plunge the knife in. Why? Because he trusted, as it says in Hebrews 11, that God would raise him from the dead. That's what it took. That God would remain faithful to the word that he had spoken to bless all people through Isaac. So here we have this. Jesus is simply saying, listen, faith is powerful. But which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet? I will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. So Jesus is using here the example. He's speaking a parable, some illustration to you and I. And what he's saying is this. Right? You have a servant. He's out there doing the work that you've told him to do. And when that servant comes in, he doesn't immediately or by any right or inherent value have a position of authority where he gets to tell the boss what to do. Right? The boss gets to say, you need to make ready for me to sit down and eat. That's your job. You're doing the things that you are supposed to be doing. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded to him? He says, I trow not, right? I don't think so, is the loose translation. So likewise, ye, when you have done all those things which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which our duty was our duty to do. In other words, we did our reasonable service. We did that which God could rightly expect us to do because it is what we as believers should be doing. Now, Jesus isn't here making any statements about value within his kingdom. That's not the purpose. But what he is saying, and just remember that this is in the context of faith, the disciples just said, increase our faith. And here you are, disciples of Jesus Christ. And what are we to be doing? What are we to be about? It'll be about worship of him. 
or to be those who are worshiping in spirit and in truth that are actively engaged in the verb and the act of worship. I want to give you a few examples here because I think that, and, and we talk about examples all the time. This isn't news to you and I because we've, we've been here before, but uh, maybe there's some new examples that we have that might help us as we begin this new year to be worshipers and everything that we do, to be those who would willingly lay our lives down as a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service to our Lord and Savior. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus on the good works, which he has before ordained that we should walk in them. Right? In other words, we are those servants that are out there plowing or feeding the cattle. Now, you and I may not own a plow. But Ephesians 2.10 tells us there is something that we are supposed to be doing. Those tasks that God has providentially and sovereignly placed us within. That there is a job and a task for you and I to be involved about. Now, I couldn't tell you exactly what that is for you. I only know what it is for me. I have pretty good ideas for those within, within my family to some degree. But there are those basic will, and we've talked about this before, the basic, basic will of God, those things, the general will of God, that we should be engaged in. Right? That we are given the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That our ministry, the thing that we should be engaged in, is doing what God has told us to do as he left the earth, as Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, go into all the world and make disciples. Take the gospel to the people that need it. That's a general will of God. It's something that all believers should be engaged in. It's what he has for you and me. And here is Jesus telling his disciples, listen, in response to their increase our faith, he tells them to get busy. Lay your life down. Serve me. Why? Because you trust me. Because my word has said, this is what I want you to do. Turning to 1 Peter chapter 1 for just a moment. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And it says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. But if you call on the Father, no, verse 16. All right, so here is, here is a general command that God has given you and I as believers, that we would be holy, even if he sees holy. Now, this is something that he told his people, the nation of Israel, back in the day. We read it in the Old Testament. God told Israel, be holy, for I am holy. And yet here he is reiterating it through the Apostle Peter to you and I as a church, be holy as I am holy. Now, this doesn't 
This isn't a statement about our righteousness. This is a statement, statement about, about our conduct. conduct. We are declared righteous before God. We're justified. But how do we conduct ourselves? How do we conduct ourselves? Is the, the outward expression of my justification something that is consistent that the world would look at and say, hey, there's a difference here. I wrote about in the in the pastor's note for the bulletin this month, an interaction that I had with a young man and he was expressing frustration over his interaction with the people that he was working with. So he's in high school, played sports and done those things. And when he gets a job in sort of a semi-professional atmosphere, he has an expectation that these adults will conduct themselves differently than the guys in the locker room at school. And he's expressing this frustration because it's the same. And in some degrees, it's far worse amongst these adults. And that's just an illustration because here we are as the body of Christ, Christ, the church, the representative of Jesus Christ in this world. And there should be a substantial difference. It shouldn't be like the locker room. Be ye holy as I am holy. Walk in obedience to the word of God as he has described it here. This is what you, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. Those things that set us apart as God's disciples, his followers. There should be some distinction. These are all general. I want to give you some more specific examples, and I can't uh, exactly give you verse by verse or chapter by chapter, but what I'm going to draw upon is the sovereignty of God and placing you where you are right now. Right, That each of us has some specific purpose and plan that God has called us to walk in. And we know that in Ephesians 2.10, it isn't just his general will that's being discussed here. It's the very specific things that he's called you and I to. And whether that's being children or whether it's being parents or spouses or, or having the job that we have, whatever those things may be, we've talked about those in the past. But what I want you to realize is that those things change. But the will of God for you to be operating in whatever state you're in hasn't changed. That here we are as parents, and, and our role as parents changes as our children age, doesn't it? it, it it's different when your children are adults and out there in the world than it is for the children that are dependent upon you. Your role is different as a parent, yet you are still the parent, and we still honor God in that service to him. It's easy, and it's tempting to say, well, they're out on their own, so apron strings are cut. I don't suspect that anyone here probably is going to, to, to have that, that cutaway moment where they're just disengaged with their children, their adult children. I don't expect that in our church. But I'm using it as an illustration that as time progresses, God and his sovereignty has placed you there. And you know what? We all get older. We, we all progress through life and we're in different stages, different seasons. Yet God has sovereignly placed us in that season. That here we have the opportunity as, as Paul would speak to Titus, that you older women 
disciple the younger women. You older men, disciple the younger men. Why? Because there is an opportunity and an availability the younger men don't have. There's the wisdom and the experience of walking with God for decades the younger men or younger women don't have. And God in his word has said, listen, this is a method of instruction. We should be engaged in that. Why? Because it is the expression of worship. It is our laying down of our lives. It's, yeah, I don't maybe want to do it. It's uncomfortable. I don't even know how to do it, but here I am. God has placed me in this position, so how may I serve him in it? And as Jesus is here talking in Luke, listen, I'm not expecting any of us to get a big pat on the back. Why? Because it's our reasonable service. It's, it's the, the job, job he's told us to do. He's not rolling out that. There's a time when the red carpet is rolled out for you and I as believers. That's, That's coming. coming. But here in this life, as we lay down our life, which is our reasonable service, to serve him as an act of worship, we may not get the big pat on the back. But that doesn't change anything. That doesn't change our responsibility. It doesn't, and, and not only that, but it's not going to change the joy and the privilege that we have in that service. Just because we don't have somebody saying, good, good job, job, well done, done good and faithful servant at this very moment. moment. When we're engaged in those things, it may seem a drudgery that we've been doing for decades, and we're, we're going to not grow weary in well-doing. We're going to stand up. We're going to do those things. We're going to pursue them new and afresh. Here it is, a new year, right? We, if you made resolutions, they're probably centered around those things where you've identified in your life, these are things that I need to shore up. That's what resolutions typically are about. And I don't have a problem with resolutions. I've made resolutions in the past. I haven't made any this year. I'm thinking about some. I want to be intentional about it. Why? Because I want to find those areas where I need to shore up my worship. Where I can more clearly and more consistently lay down my life as a reasonable service. Now, what I do expect is a result of, of shoring up those areas of pursuit of God in areas of worship that I have left untouched or neglected. What I do expect, and what I think we could all probably expect, is some renewed uh, enthusiasm. And, and it isn't something that we're going to come up with ourselves, right? You get up in the morning, like this morning, right? I had purpose, I'm going to, you know... Sunday mornings, I'm going to get up, and for me, Sunday mornings is, is a pretty laid-back morning in some respects until a certain time, then it's all hands on deck. But I got a short period of time, and so I was, I'm going to use that time, and I had purpose to get up and, like, and stretch and, you know, physically stretch because you get older and things don't move and bend, and I keep getting hurt, and I'm like, I got to do something, and I'm injury-prone at this point in my life. So... That's what I was going to do. Well, I, you know what? I slept in this morning. The alarm went off. I didn't want to get up. There's an enthusiasm. There's a zeal to do it, but it doesn't mean that it's still easy. 
doesn't mean that I wake up every morning and I'm thinking to myself, here we go. I'm ready. I'm, I'm just engaged in this and I'm going to just pop up every time the alarm goes off. That's the first time it goes off. But there is a renewed enthusiasm. And the other thing that I would expect is that as, so as we pursue God, as we identify these areas where we need to shore up our worship or the expression, the outward expression of our laying down of our lives before him, our reasonable service, as we do so, as we identify those, as we begin to engage in them, it's not going to be easy, but it will come with a renewed enthusiasm. It'll come with this sense of purpose, the sense of, I don't know how else to say it, sense of purpose. There are some inevitabilities that we need to, uh, need to be aware of if we're going to be those that are conscientious and active worshipers, worshipers of God. Uh, first off, we have to understand that there's a, a time of reaping is come. I mean, that's, that's where it is for the nation of Israel, that, that they are reaping what they've sown. It's inevitable. And it's not going to change. And that's why God says, don't rejoice because here it comes. So there are times there's going to be some inevitabilities that we encounter. There's going to be a time of reaping. That you and I may have neglected things and we may be reaping things in our lives as a result of that neglect. We have sown to the flesh and now we're reaping some of the heartache associated with our sinfulness. It's inevitable. It's what God told us that we should should expect. expect. Secondly, there may be some mistreatment of believers, and I don't know how else to phrase it. It may be persecution. It may be something less or more mild than persecution. Maybe it's mockery. Maybe it's scorn. But here's the thing. If we are going to be those worshipers of God, there are going to be those who push back against it. Let me jump back to Hosea chapter 9 for just a moment. He says in verse 7, he says, The day of visitations are come, the day of recompense are come, Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool, the spiritual man is mad for the multitude of thy iniquity and thy great hatred. Right, what, he's what he's saying here is that, that amongst the worshipers of God, the sincere and honest believers, the prophet and the spiritual man, they're the ones that are considered mad, they're the ones that are considered to be fools by Israel. That's what he's saying. You and I, when we begin to stand for God, when we are active worshipers, when we lay down our life, when we do so, so in such a way, way. we are cognizant and we're aware of the holiness yes, that we are to have and we stand firm there. That we take the word of God seriously and that becomes the outlet of expression in our lives because we want to reflect as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, his kingdom. There's going to be some pushback. We're going to be considered mad. We're going to be those that, that are looked at and disdained and hated. And I don't want you shining the light into the darkness. All of those things are still true. We should expect it. They are inevitable. I hold back from saying that it's a sign that you're doing a good job because maybe you are, maybe you aren't. I don't know. And just because there is some pushback doesn't mean that we are necessarily doing a good job, but maybe it means we're doing a good job too. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I want to read uh, verses 1 through 5. 
because this is applicable. This was applicable in Paul's day and Timothy's day. And it's applicable today in within, unfortunately, even within Christian circles, within the circles of those who would name Christ. He says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. So just a state, a brief statement there about who he is, a reminder of why we would worship him, that he's the creator, that he is the one who is going to judge both the living and the dead, the quick and the dead. And then he's coming back. He's returning. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. In other words, we're going to take the word of God, what he has said, what he has clearly revealed. That's going to be what we stand on. That's what we speak. And we're going to be ready in and out of season all the time. We're going to be ready. And we've spent here at our church, we've spent time, whether it's in Sunday school, in some of our sermons, we've spent time in our Bible studies trying to be ready, to be those who could give an answer to the hope that lies within us, those who could contend and stand for the faith, those who could reasonably argue for the things and the principles of God. To be instant in season and out of season. And at some point, right, you study, you look at God's creation, and I don't know if you're familiar with the wood duck. But the wood duck, they lay their eggs way up in these trees, really high. Sometimes as high as 80, 90, 100 feet. And the mother lays the eggs, and when she leaves, when these little, when these little ducklings hatch, they can't fly. They don't have feathers, right? But they jump out. She goes down here. She starts quacking at them, and they jump out. It's a literal leap of faith in, in some respect, right? At some point, we have to jump out. At some point, we have to take the training, the equipping, the, the being instant in and out of season, and we have to do something with it. We have to move forward. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not accusing anyone here of not. What I want, what I do want to do is issue us a challenge that we, as in our church, in our families, individually, that we would be those who would step out, that, that we would, despite the inevitabilities, be worshipers of God and express that worship by the laying down of our life and standing upon the principles of his word, knowing that people don't want to hear it. Paul goes on, he says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. There is a time coming when when even more than today, people don't want to hear truth. And unfortunately, we find that in the experience of meeting within the church, those who don't want to hear truth. This is clearly what God has said. But for whatever reason, we're going to listen to some other authority. We're going to look to some other authority and establish some idol, and that's going to be what we hold up as our standard. Right? You see denominations all over uh, that are accepting now, and not only accepting, but pushing other non-accepting, quote-unquote, non-accepting denominations or churches 
that we need to embrace and, and allow and be permissive of homosexuality and those kinds of issues. We see those kinds of things becoming far and far more normal. And it's inevitable that we stand against those because they have heaped to themselves teachers having itches. I mean, this this scratches the itch. It helps me soothe my conscience. Whatever the whatever the reason may be, here it is. I'm willing to accept that fable, that untruth. In verse five, he says, "Though watch thou on all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and make full proof of thy ministry." Make full proof of thy ministry. In other words, put your hand to the plow, right? That's do the things that I have called you to do. Where I called you to do them, when I called you to do them. Turn back to Romans 6 with me. I'm going to close with a few thoughts here this morning. Uh, Romans 6. Let's read verse 11. He says, Likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, unto Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we may be those who struggle with sin. It's inevitable. It's one of those things that we read about in Scripture. We know it's going to happen. And just a few verses after this, we read about if, if we continue, if we habitually subject ourselves and submit ourselves to we end up in bondage to it. We end up entangled with it. Hebrews 12 would say that it's the sin that does easily beset us or entangle us. It entraps us. So here it says to reckon ourselves or consider ourselves dead to sin. In other words, the, the reality is for you and I is that we are liberated from it. We are no longer subject to it. Don't put yourself back into bondage. And he goes on, he says, don't yield yourselves, your members, any longer to it. I mean, in other words, there's a decision before us. There's a choice to be made. Just as the nation of Israel had a choice, we're going to choose to worship the true and living God as the way he, in the way he's prescribed in accordance with his word, I'm going to choose to worship something else. And this is a daily practice. This is something that we do every single day. In Matthew chapter 16, turn there with me. Matthew chapter 16 is one of the few, one of the items that we find in all of the gospels. We find some conception of this principle. Here, Jesus is instructing his disciples, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 15. And he asks the question, whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. So he gives this right response. People, he asks, who do people say that I am? And they answer, well, you're a prophet or, or Elijah or something like that. And here he asks Peter specifically, who do you say that I am? Now, Peter's answer is different than the world's because he's operating in faith. He's witnessed, here are the things that God has said about the Messiah. This is the expectation that I should be holding. Does this man meet that expectation? Absolutely he does. Not only that, but I trust. 
So he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered in verse 17, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed unto thee but my Father, which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates shall not prevail against it. And it will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom and heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he to disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus, Jesus. the Christ. Verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now here is Peter, this guy who just minutes before acknowledged, this is Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of God, the one is that, is, that has been promised. And Jesus commends him and he says, good job, Peter. This is something that God himself has revealed to you that you have accepted by faith. And then as Jesus begins to further expound to his disciples, Peter included that I'm going to have to suffer, which is also revealed in the Old Testament, right? In Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his stripes, we are healed. This suffering, this expected suffering of the Messiah was, was very clear in the Old Testament. Yet when, Peter, when, when Jesus began to discuss the necessity for him to submit to that suffering. Peter says, whoa, 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 pump the brakes, Jesus. I got another plan. This is not happening to you. And Jesus returned in verse 23 and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Peter's mouth-watering delicacies weren't the things of God. They were the things of men. Those things that he desired, that he was looking forward to, were somehow misplaced. When we think about the things that we experience in life, when we think about the place that God has sovereignly put us and how we might serve, how we might lay our life down as that act of reasonable worship before him, no matter where we're at, we have to think about it in the way that God would think about it. We have to take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. Right? I don't like the fact all the time that I have a lot of gray. I have more gray. I think I, in some respects, I have more gray than my dad has. I'm pretty sure I have more gray in my beard than my dad has. I haven't seen my dad with a full beard for a while, so I could be wrong about that, but I'm just based on observation. But you know, I understand what the Bible says about a gray head, a hoary head being an honor and something that is an expression of wisdom, something that God would, would use to indicate understanding, as it were. And I realize that maybe I'm not the most understanding person He's talking about experience of having walked with him for long periods of time, and, and that's what's being discussed in Proverbs. But I'm going to think about it the way that God thinks about it. And as silly as it may seem, my gray hairs and, and whiskers and those things, that I'm going to just trust that God is using 
to give me some credibility, <laughs> wherever I might need some credibility, or whatever the purpose may be. Right? That as we progress from stage of life to stage of life to wherever it may be, whatever it may be, that God would use that. That I would think about it the way God thinks about it. That I would savor the things that are of God. His sovereignty, his providence, the way that he has brought them to be. In verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sakes shall find it. Jesus is telling Peter and the rest of his disciples that are there, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be that person that sees things the way that I do, if you begin, if you're going to be the person that savors the things of God, then you have to make the choice to take up your cross and follow me. And this is something we're going to have to do every day. We pick up that cross and we make the conscious act of worship expressed in submission to Jesus Christ. On, on Tuesday morning, I went to work Tuesday morning. I did not want to be at work. You know, we just come off a long weekend. My family was at home. Uh, I, I just, I did not want to be there. And I struggled. I, I didn't, you know, I was kind of wasteful of my time for a little while. I, I had to, I had to say, listen, for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ, I'm going to have to get my act together. I'm not here for the paycheck. I'm here for his honor and glory. And so therefore, I better get busy and reflect my profession of faith in my outward expression at my job. And I had to think that over and over and over. And in fact, I got to the point where I actually articulated to one of my coworkers out loud as like, this is, I am struggling today. And here, and, and they're like, oh yeah, me too. You know, I just, and I'm like, no, this is a real struggle. And it became an opportunity to share the gospel with this guy. But I had to make a conscious act a decision to follow Christ in something seemingly insignificant, a job that I go to every day. Whosoever will save his life, whoever will hold it, whoever will retain it unto himself rather than lay it down, will lose it. It's going to be ill-spent. It's going to be like a hole in your pocket. You put the money in, it falls down your pant leg, it's gone. Jesus isn't talking about loss of salvation. What he's talking about is a loss of redemption. Loss of, that's a terrible phrase. That's, that's wrong too. That's not, <laughs> Jesus says, Paul says to redeem the time. We lost the opportunity to redeem something for the glory of the honor of the Lord. That's what I mean by loss of redemption. We misplaced it. But he goes on, he says, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, who will lay it down, who will be that willing sacrifice, he shall find it. He will be redeemed. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, turn back there with me as we close this morning with this verse. Here is God again, just to remind you, he's telling the nation of Israel, he's telling them that if you 
continue in this pursuit of idolatry, in this pursuit of other authorities, if you're willing to worship other things and lay your life down and be subject to other things besides me, you're going to be removed from the land. You're going to go back into bondage. And to whatever degree, we've probably all found ourselves there. Maybe we're thinking of ourselves, well, that's something where I need to work on in this particular area. And we might find ourselves in certain areas of our life where we've left things unoccupied, so to speak. We've neglected them. God makes this promise to the nation of Israel in verse 29 of Deuteronomy 4, just on the heels of telling them that you're going to get kicked out of the land and this is what you do. But if from thence, from wherever I've scattered you to, from whatever nation that you find yourself in, from whatever state, whatever neglect, whatever thing we have bowed ourselves down and allowed ourselves to become subject to, if from then, from there, thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. And if thou seek him with all thine heart and with all thy soul. John would put it this way, First John, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is expressed here in Deuteronomy 4.29 is repentance. Is a turning from whatever other thing back to the true and living God. Back to a heart of worship, back to a heart of subjection and worship of him through our outward expression of submission. Through the picking up of our cross on a daily basis. The nation of Israel has failed and the time for them has come. And maybe this message is halting and stumbling as it may be this morning is a day of visitation for us. Where God would say, listen, I want you to think about things the way I do. I want you to redeem that time. Well, I want you to lay down your life before me in these areas. His promise to you and I is that if we do, if we seek him in those areas, we'll find him. And he'll be there with us, that he will be honored and glorified. And maybe we will have the privilege of being those who would reap a harvest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be with you in your word this morning. I thank you for the example of the nation of Israel and the people that are there. Lord, sometimes a positive example and sometimes a negative example, but nonetheless, something that you use to instruct us. God, I pray for each one of us here and for myself as well, Lord, that by your grace and the conviction of your spirit, you would shine the light into our lives in ways that we are harboring idols. Those places, Lord, where we are less than worshipers of you, that we have exalted something or someone or some indulgence above the proper place that you should hold in that, in that spot in our heart. And Lord, as we feel the conviction of your spirit, Lord, would you extend your grace to us that we might be those who would respond rightly to it. Lord, that we might be those who would worship you in spirit and in truth as we are compelled by your spirit to worship you. Lord, may we understand the reasonable service because of who you are and all that you've revealed of yourself. And Lord, would you give us your grace to stand on your word? We know that to do so, maybe more so today than any, any other time in our country's history or in our own histories, Lord, it may mean 
the inevitability of hardship. But Lord, we trust for your grace who might do that very thing and stand even though it may be hard. God, as we have the opportunity to sing and to ascribe praise and worship to who you are this morning, we pray that you would be honored by the offering of our lips as we praise you for all that you've done. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and that we give thanks. Amen.